I'm going to be reading from Luke, uh, chapter 19, 28 to 44. After Jesus had said this, he went on ahead, going up to Jerusalem. And as he approached Bethphage and Bethany at the hill called the Mount of Olives, he sent two of his disciples, saying to them, Go to the village ahead of you, and as you enter it, you will find a colt tied there, which no one has ever ridden. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, Why are you untying it? Say, the Lord needs it. And those who were sent ahead went and found it just as he had told them. And as they were untying the colt, its owners asked them, Why are you untying the colt? And they replied, Well, the Lord needs it. And they brought it to Jesus, threw their cloaks on the colt, and put Jesus on it. And as he went along, people spread their cloaks on the road. And when he came near the place where the road goes down the Mount of Olives, the whole crowd of disciples began joyfully to praise God in loud voices for all the miracles they had seen. Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to Jesus, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. And I tell you, he replied, If they keep quiet, the stones will cry out. And as he approached Jerusalem and saw the city, he wept over it and said, If you, even you, had only known on this day what would bring you peace, and now it is hidden from your eyes. The days will come upon you when your enemies will build an embankment against you and encircle you and hem you in on every side. They will dash you to the ground, you and the children within your walls. They will not leave one stone on another because you did not recognize the time of God's coming to you. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning. If you were expecting to hear Pastor Brian this morning, I'm afraid you're in the wrong place. Brian is actually at the Cascades Casino this morning, participating in the district conference or district competition of Toastmasters. And we are so proud of him and the way that he puts such effort into improving his public speaking and the way that he gets out into the community and rubs shoulders with people who don't know him yet, who don't know Jesus. And so that's where Brian is today. And so my name is Jennifer, and I'm here to share with you on uh, this beautiful Palm Sunday. So have you ever had an experience where you didn't see something that was just right in front of you? Some just glaringly obvious thing that escaped your vision somehow? Uh, My kids do this all the time, especially when they're getting ready for school. They'll say, Mom, have you seen my homework? Yes, it's on the table, dear. Have you seen my rubber boots? Yes, they're on the porch. Do you have my keys? No, they're in your coat pocket. Have you seen my coat? Yes, it's on the floor. And we go on like this. And I think a lot of moms can relate to this. We could say every weekday morning, I'm so sorry I'm late. I had to find everything that was in plain sight for my children. But um, most of the time, their blindness doesn't bother me too much because I know I suffer from the same problem. Uh, I've been looking for my phone when it's in my back pocket. 
I've uh, almost run into people at the grocery store because I'm so focused on the shelves looking for what I need that I don't see the person right in front of me. And uh, one time when I was 16 years old, I had a very embarrassing moment in front of my driving instructor. Um, This was actually on my first road test, and I was really nervous. I lived in Saskatoon at the time, and the licensing office was on kind of the main street that goes right through downtown, and uh, the parking lot was in a little alley between two buildings. And so I got into my car with the driving instructor, and I carefully buckled up, I checked my mirrors, I uh, backed out slowly, and then I had to turn out of this alley, turn right, onto the busy street. But on that particular day, there was a semi-trailer parked immediately to my left, and I could not see what was coming. And there was a pretty steady stream of cars going past, so I'm creeping forward very cautiously, trying to kind of crane my neck and see around this semi-trailer and feeling like, oh, I better do something. And so as soon as there was a long enough pause in the traffic, I just gunned it and went for it and, of course, um, hit the car that I couldn't have seen coming. And uh, I slammed on the brakes, and he slammed on the brakes, and the hubcap of the car I had hit sort of went rolling down the road in slow motion like a, like a tumbleweed. <laughs> I would have laughed if I hadn't been so completely mortified. But uh, my instructor did not laugh. <laughs> he just said, back the car up and park. And uh, that was the end of my first driver's test. So <laughs> uh, you can... Um, bet that I spent a lot of time beating myself up over that. If only I had seen what was right in front of me, but my vision was blocked. If only I had asked for help, I probably wouldn't have passed the test, but at least I wouldn't have hit anybody. Um, I was told afterward, by the way, that instead of creeping forward the way I was doing, I should have actually just backed up so I could see past the end of the trailer. Uh, Let that be a lesson to those of you who may have a road test sometime in the near future. But when we miss the obvious, we often get a case of the if-onlys. And I've given you a rather lighthearted and funny example, but I've got other more serious regrets in my life, as most of us do, where I've been blind to something that if only I had seen, I would have saved myself a lot of grief. And you may have some if-onlys that come to your mind, Usually they're actually kind of hard to get out of our minds. And we say things like, if only I had known then what I know now. If only I had done such and such. If only I hadn't said that. If only I hadn't been there on that day or whatever it is. And did you know that in the scripture that Jason read for us today, Jesus had a case of the if onlys. Not for his own regrets. He didn't have any because he was the perfect sinless son of God who was completely in tune with God's will for his life. But he had the if-onlys for the sake of the people of Jerusalem. He foresaw the suffering and the judgment that was going to come upon them. And he knew it could be avoided if only they could see what was right in front of them. Many of you are already familiar with the story of Palm Sunday. Many of you probably learned it as children and came into church at some point, waving palm branches and singing Hosanna. We didn't do that today, because today I want us to look at the end of the story of Palm Sunday, where Jesus 
is filled with grief. Why would I do that? Well, as you know, we've, we've started a journey through the book of Luke over the past few weeks. And last week we were looking at Luke 4, the story of Jesus' baptism and his temptation. We'll get back to that after Easter, but for the next couple of weeks we're going to flash forward to the end of Luke and consider the final events of Jesus' life on earth. This is going to actually help us when we then go back and carry on through Luke, because we'll, have beginning, we'll be beginning Luke with the end in mind. And the end for Jesus was not success. It was not vindication. It was not a mountaintop experience. It was the valley of the shadow of death. It was suffering. It was humiliation. And yes, we know that the resurrection came afterwards and made everything worth it. That's what we'll be celebrating next Sunday on Easter. But from an earthly perspective, on Palm Sunday, Jesus' ministry had failed. It was predestined to fail from the beginning. He would not succeed in helping the people of Israel to see who he really was while he lived on earth. And even his own disciples didn't really get it. They thought they did, but they were nearly as blind as everyone else about Jesus' true identity and purpose. And that's why they deserted him when things got tough. So let this sink in for a minute. Jesus did not succeed. His ministry was a three-year exercise in frustration, in disappointment, in rewording the same teachings over and over and having people just stare blankly or be openly hostile to him. His ministry was like that of Jeremiah, the prophet. It was an exercise in, in futility. He was sent to prophesy to people that he knew would not listen and would not get it. And in Matthew the Gospel of Matthew, it puts it very bluntly. It uh, quotes from Isaiah where it says, In them is fulfilled the prophecy of Isaiah. You will be ever hearing, but never understanding. You will be ever seeing, but never perceiving. For this people's heart has become calloused. They hardly hear with their ears. They've closed their eyes. Otherwise, they might see with their eyes, hear with their ears, and turn, and I would heal them. Jesus tried and tried and tried to teach these people. They didn't get it. And now judgment was on its way. This is sad. Jesus feels that sadness in this passage. And even though we know, yes, resurrection is coming. That's going to change everything. It hasn't happened yet at this point in the story. Right now on Palm Sunday, there's failure. And failure was the plan all along. The people he came to save are going to be judged for not seeing what was right in front of them. And his heart breaks for them. Now, some of you may be thinking, well, hold on. How can you say they didn't see or understand? Here they were worshiping. They were praising God. They were welcoming Jesus, their king, into Jerusalem. So isn't this one of the rare instances where the crowd actually did get it? Even though later on in the week they betrayed him? Let's, uh, let's walk through the story. First, Jesus sends a couple of disciples out to get a donkey. And this is important because it shows that Jesus knows exactly what is supposed to happen. He knows the prophecy. It tells us that this is how the Messiah would come into Jerusalem. In Zechariah, it says, Rejoice greatly, daughter Zion. Shout, daughter Jerusalem. See, your king comes to you, righteous and victorious, 
lowly and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. But this is a really bizarre image, isn't it? Victorious warrior kings should come in riding on a great stallion, not on a brand new baby donkey. They should be flashing their wealth and all the spoils of war and be followed by their mighty warriors, not by this ragtag band of misfits and outcasts that Jesus had collected, people that were on the fringes of respectable society. So this ought to alert us that everything is not as it seems in this story. Everything gets turned upside down. A prophecy of a king bringing victory actually leads into Jesus' prophecy of judgment. The celebration turns into mourning. The success is shadowed by failure. And those who are praising Jesus are actually oblivious to who he really is. They were pretty excited to see him, no doubt. It says, verse 37, The whole crowd of disciples began joyfully to praise God in loud voices for all the miracles they had seen. Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Those are nice words. Sounds good. Sounds biblical. Especially that last part. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Where have we heard that before? A few weeks ago, we were in Luke 2. When the angels come to the shepherds and they say, Glory to God in highest heaven and on earth peace to those on whom his favor rests. This is... A solid, theologically sound expression of praise that the people are singing. And if it's good enough for the angels, it should be good enough for us, right? The, the words, the actions of this crowd, they're right on. And the Pharisees, who were there in the crowd, this super righteous Jewish elite, they hear this and they're appalled because they know what the crowd is saying, that this is the Messiah. This is the king in the line of David who's going to come and rule over Israel. And they look at Jesus, this kind of sad, discouraged guy on a donkey, and they think, this crowd doesn't know what they're talking about. They're blaspheming. They accuse the crowds. But Jesus defends them. He defends his disciples and he gives approval to their praise when he says that if they didn't praise him, even the stones would cry out. So then what, what is the problem here? This, this all sounds good. The triumphant entry into Jerusalem was prophesied back in the Old Testament in Zechariah. It was brought to fulfillment. The people said everything they were supposed to say. They did everything they were supposed to do. The Pharisees have been put in their place. And this is a great celebration. But look at Jesus. In the midst of this great celebration, Jesus is crying. Not just crying, not just a little trickle down the cheek, but it says he's weeping, great big heaving sobs. He was probably in need of some Kleenex at this point, if they had had that back then. Why? Why is he crying now? I'm sure that Peter and James and John or whichever disciples were nearest to him at that point were pretty baffled and a little bit embarrassed. Here they are coming in in great pomp and ceremony, and Jesus is weeping. And then he says, if you, even you, had only known on this day what would bring you peace, if only. But now it's hidden from your eyes. The days will come when your enemies will build an embankment against you and encircle you and hem you in on every side. They will dash you to the ground, you and the children within your walls. They will not leave one stone on another because you did not recognize 
the time of God's coming to you. Now, it sure seemed like they recognized it. They thought they recognized it. They'd seen Jesus' miracles, and they assumed that that meant salvation for them. Salvation being a new king who would drive out the Romans and restore Israel's glory and autonomy as a nation. They were confident that they knew exactly who God was and what he was doing. But, in fact, they were missing the point completely. I find this so tragic, and actually, it's a really terrifying passage of scripture to me. Who's to say that we, here in our church, are completely missing the point sometimes? If this story is indicative of human nature, then there's a strong possibility that sometimes we are. We may be saying and doing the right things that look good, that sound good. When we come together to worship, our theology may be right, our emotions may be pumped, but do we truly recognize who Jesus is and what he came to do for us? And do we understand his purposes in our lives and in the life of our church? Our expectations of God and who we think he should be can blind us to God when he's right in front of us. And they can make us turn on God when he doesn't meet them. The writer Anne Lamott has said, expectations are resentments under construction. The people in the crowd on Palm Sunday expected a king. They expected miracles. They expected triumphant victory over evil Roman oppression. And they were so focused on those things that they missed the point that Jesus actually came for something else. He came to die. He came to suffer. He came to fail. He came to bring them what they actually needed, not what they wanted. They wanted freedom from pain and suffering. We all do. But when they, what they needed was forgiveness and peace with God. They couldn't see that. And so when they didn't get what they expected, they were all too happy to shout, crucify him, only a few days later. Scripture does promise that God will meet all our needs. In Philippians 4, it says, And my God will meet all your needs according to his riches in Christ Jesus. But the problem is we don't actually know what our needs are. We read this verse and we think, oh good, God will meet all my needs. So, I'll always have good health, I'll always have enough money, I'll have a safe and happy family because that's what I need. Um, No, unfortunately not. What we need, according to Jesus, is not money, not comfort, not health, not better government or better circumstances in life. What we need is internal. We need peace with God. That's what he provides. We need to know God and be known by him. We need a relationship with our Heavenly Father that isn't constantly getting messed up by all the ways that we fail and hurt him. So let me read you a short excerpt from an article that I read this week. It's in Christianity Today. You can look it up. It's by Jonathan Merritt, and it's called Palm Sunday and the Gift of Disillusionment. He writes, Jesus is a king, but not the kind they wanted. He will serve rather than be served. He will die and not be killed. He enters unarmed, waging peace. This makes a larger point that God does not intend to meet our expectations. 
Instead, he meets our needs. This type of God makes me uncomfortable. I don't want vegetables when I'm craving candy. I want a God that satisfies my desires, whether or not those align with my needs. And so it is with all of us. We welcome God into our lives with anticipation, with expectation. We're laying down cloaks and we're waving palm branches with all we've got. But when God turns out to be someone we don't recognize, we scatter like smoke in the wind. So if we have come here to worship God only because of the pleasant things that we expect him to give us, because of the miracles we may have seen, because of the external blessings that have made our lives easier, then we are missing the point. And we will eventually turn against God when he doesn't deliver what we expect. When our life blows up and things go wrong, we're going to be crushed by our disappointment and our anger unless we can have our eyes opened to see what Jesus is really up to. Jesus came to bring all people peace with God. That's why he says, if only you knew what would bring you peace. And we can either joyfully accept the gift that he's given us, or we can get angry and turn against him and reject him because of the gifts that he hasn't given us. We can rejoice in this newfound peace with God that he's brought us, or we can resent him for not living up to our expectations in providing everything that we want and protecting us and healing us and comforting us to our specifications. We need our eyes open to see what Jesus is doing in our lives and in the life of this church and in the life of the community that's around us, because his mission has not changed. He offers everyone peace with God. True salvation, forgiveness of sin. And are we missing the point sometimes? Is our vision blocked, like mine was, by this big semi-trailer of expectations that we have of God? And are we just driving blindly ahead? If Jesus were sitting here with us in the flesh this morning, would he be celebrating with us or would he be weeping at our cluelessness? I want us to think about this seriously. It's an honest question. Are there ways in which we are missing the point? Are there ways our spiritual vision is blocked? What might Jesus, if onlys, be for us? This Friday, on Good Friday, we're going to gather together to reflect on Jesus' suffering and his death and to thank him for the sacrifice he made that made it possible for us to know God intimately. And I'd like to challenge you to spend a little time in deliberate prayer before then. I'd like to challenge you to imagine Jesus is speaking to you, right there, wherever you are meeting with him, and prayerfully ask him how he would finish this sentence. If only you knew that. If only you knew. I don't know what he might reveal to you personally, but if you make time to hear him, I know it will be powerful. I've spent some time doing that this week as I've prepared for this message, and I'll share with you what he spoke to me. This is what I think Jesus would say based on my own spiritual struggles and experiences in life right now. 
he would say, Jennifer, if only you knew that it's not about how good you are or aren't. It's not about you at all. You're my daughter. You're okay. It's about others who don't yet know me. I care about reaching them way more than I care about the fact that you aren't perfect yet. They need me more than you do. Help me reach them. That's what he's saying to me. And I need Jesus a lot. Listen, I need Jesus every single minute with every single breath. I need Jesus' help. I feel like an emotional basket case more often than not. Brian could tell you how many times I've been crying in his office. I think we've lost count. But you know what? Jesus says to me, actually, you're fine. You know, stop thinking about yourself so much. There's others who need me more, and that's who you need to focus on. And do you think maybe this might actually apply to our church family a little bit? I think it does. We all need that reminder. There are others who need Jesus more, that don't know anything about him. They don't know what they're missing. They, don't, they can't see that forgiveness and a restored friendship with God is what they actually need, and that's the only thing that's going to bring them peace. They're chasing after all kinds of other things to bring them peace in life. But we worry about ourselves. As individuals, as a church, we worry about our budget, our programs, our volunteers, our building, our relationships, our health. How much do we worry about the people who aren't here? As Pastor Brian has reminded us before, the church exists for those who are outside of it. Our purpose, as White Rock Baptists, is to impact the world with the good news of Jesus' love and forgiveness. So when we're here, gathered together, we're not supposed to be here just for ourselves. We're here for others. We come here so that we can welcome and serve others and bring them into God's presence together with us. We go to our life groups, not for ourselves, but to encourage others. We go to our jobs to benefit others. And as we do this, as we've put our focus outward, we will be blessed. We will be filled. God will help us. He will lead us and guide us. But if we focus on ourselves and on the expectations that we think God should meet and the needs that we have, then we're missing the point. Let's not miss the point. Let's not be like these crowds on Palm Sunday who were praising God But they didn't recognize him in the flesh when he was right in front of them. Let's thank God that when we know Christ, he fills us with the Holy Spirit so that he can open our eyes, so that he can help us see what we're missing. So I want you to ask God this week, what am I missing? Lord, what am I not seeing? What's blocking my vision? If I only knew... What? I don't know what it is for you, but get ready, because if you ask God, he will tell you. Let's pray together for his help. Lord, we can be so blind sometimes. We miss the forest for the trees. And Lord, we want to learn from this passage of scripture Not to praise you for what we can get, or even for what you have given us, 
but to see who you really are and why you're here, what you want us to do, how we need to change to be more like you. Lord, open our eyes to all the people who are not here, our neighbors, our friends, our family, our co-workers, people we meet every day who need peace with you. And you can offer that. You've bought our peace with God. So Lord, enlighten us. Open our eyes to see you. That we will not be blind anymore. That we'll see clearly who you are and what you can do through us. We thank you, Lord, because we know that you will answer our prayers. In Jesus' name, amen.